Welcome to the January 12th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, new research reveals that the mechanosensory ion channel Piezo-1 is the elusive carrier molecule of the ER blood group antigens, thus establishing a new blood group system. Next, we review results of a randomized phase 3 trial of enacidinib versus conventional treatment in late-stage mutant IDH2 relapsed or refractory AML. Although the primary endpoint of overall survival was not met, investigators say the risk-benefit ratio remains positive. Finally, we'll review a study showing a clinically significant risk of breakthrough COVID-19 infections in patients with B-cell malignancies, despite vaccination and pre-exposure prophylaxis with tixagevimab-silgavimab during the Omicron era. However, hospitalization rates in the study were low, and no deaths were reported. The first research article is entitled Missense Mutations in Piezo-1, Encoding the Piezo-1 Mechanosensor Protein. Define the ER red blood cell antigens. And the first author is Vanja Karamatic crew of the International Blood Group Reference Laboratory in Bristol, United Kingdom. Characterizing a blood group system takes a lot of time and hard work, starting with comparative immunohemonological methods to meticulously collect individual samples. The task of deciphering blood groups is now aided by whole exome sequencing. Since 2012, the International Society of Blood Transfusion recognized 13 new blood group systems. In official records, there are 378 recognized blood group antigens, of which 345 now fit into one of 43 different blood group systems determined by 48 genes. One blood group collection of antigens for which the carrier molecule has remained elusive is the ER blood group. The ERA antigen, which is found at a high frequency, was initially discovered in 1982. Its counterpart, the low-frequency ERB antigen, was identified six years later. A third antigen in the ER collection, called ER3, is identified by an antibody produced by an individual who lacks the ERA and ERB antigens. Anti-ER3 production has been associated with mild hemolytic transfusion reactions. Now, in a study published in Blood, Researchers have identified the ion channel Piezo-1 as the carrier molecule for the ER blood group antigens. Piezo-1 is a mechanosensitive cation channel first described in 2010. It is expressed in many tissues and is a large protein with 36 transmembrane domains and one large extracellular domain. Understanding Piezo-1's structure, function, and mechanisms has increased rapidly in a relatively short time. This channel is implicated in a variety of critical processes in the bladder, colon, kidney, and lung, and the sensing of blood flow in the vasculature. Piezo-1 also plays a key role in regulating red cell volume in the circulation. Rare loss-of-function mutations in the Piezo-1 gene result in generalized lymphatic dysplasia, while more common autosomal-dominant mutations have been linked to dehydrated hereditary stomatocytosis. So how did the researchers identify Piezo-1 as the common carrier for the ER blood group antigens? With the use of whole exome sequencing, followed by Sanger sequencing in subjects with serologically defined ER-related alloantibodies, they identified missense and nonsense mutations in the Piezo-1 gene. Researchers were able to confirm Piezo-1 as the ER blood group antigen carrier molecule in follow-up experiments involving CRISPR-Cas9-mediated gene knockout in an erythroid cell line, expression studies, proteomics, 
electrophysiology, and serological characterization that was extensive. These studies, as described in blood, help define the molecular basis of the ERA, ERB, and ER3 blood group antigens. They also went on to identify two new high-incidence antigens, which they describe in the paper as ER4 and ER5, which are implicated in severe hemolytic disease of the fetus and newborn. And piezo one is a highly polymorphic gene, meaning that in the future, further antigens of both high and low incidence likely will be identified and added to the ER system. Taken together, investigators say these data support elevating ER from a blood group collection to a full blood group system. By identifying the carrier for ER red cell antigens, they have also expanded our view of the importance of the piezo one protein. And remarkably, piezo one is present at just a few hundred copies on the red blood cell surface. That highlights a key point. Low copy number is not a barrier to functional importance or to antigenicity. A commentary on these findings comes from Christoph Gossner of the Institute of Translational Medicine at the private university in Liechtenstein. In the commentary, Gossner says the researchers have fulfilled two core criteria for recognition of a new blood group system. One is the identification of at least one natural human alloantibody directed against an erythrocyte antigen. The other is the description of a causative DNA polymorphism in a gene that is distinct from genes that encode antigens in currently recognized blood group systems. Gossner also notes that the timing of the discoveries regarding piezo one was quite remarkable. In October 2021, while researchers were likely compiling their data, the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine was awarded to Ardem Padapushian for his discoveries regarding the two mechanically activated ion channels, piezo one and piezo two. Gossner concludes that piezo one is a remarkable protein, one that teaches us to look beyond our respective horizons, to dive into foreign disciplines and learn new things. The next research article, entitled Enacidinib versus Conventional Care in Older Patients with Late-Stage Mutant IDH2 Relapsed Refractory AML, a Randomized Phase three Trial, is from Stéphane de Botton of Gustave Roussy in Villejuif, France, and co-authors. Many older adults with AML are refractory to induction chemotherapy, and of those who do attain morphologic remission, most will eventually relapse. Their prognosis is generally dismal. Options for treatment in this setting include intensive salvage chemotherapy, lower-intensity approaches using cytarabine, azacitidine, or dacitabine, and supportive care measures. And in recent years, several targeted therapies have become available. One of the targets is somatic mutations in the isocitrate dehydrogenase 2, or IDH2, gene. These mutations have been reported in 8 to 20% of patients with AML and exert their leukemogenic effect through the neomorphic production of beta-hydroxyglutarate, an oncometabolite that poisons epigenic regulators to arrest myeloid differentiation. Enacidinib is an oral small molecule inhibitor of the mutant IDH2 enzyme. This agent was approved by the FDA in 2017 for treating adult patients with relapsed or refractory AML harboring an IDH2 gene mutation. That approval was based on a pivotal single-arm phase 1-2 study in adults with IDH2 mutant hematologic malignancies. For 214 patients in the study with IDH2 mutant relapsed or refractory AML, the overall response rate was 38.8% and median overall survival was 8.8 months. And treatment resulted in transfusion independence for 34% of patients who were dependent on red cell or platelet transfusion at baseline. 
The Botan and co-authors therefore undertook an international multi-center randomized phase 3 trial to determine the efficacy and safety of enacidinib as compared to conventional care in older patients with heavily pre-treated mutant IDH2 relapsed or refractory AML. Patients were randomized in a 1-to-1 ratio to receive oral enacidinib 100 mg per day or pre-selected conventional care regimen, including azacitidine, intermediate-dose cytarabine, low-dose cytarabine, or best supportive care alone. A total of 319 patients were randomized. The median patient age was 71 years, with a range of 60 to 86. About three-quarters had an IDH2-R140 mutation, and two-thirds had adverse risk AML per European leukemia net criteria. For the primary endpoint of overall survival, there was no significant difference between the enacidinib and conventional care regimen groups. The median overall survival was 6.5 and 6.3 months in the enacidinib and conventional care arms, respectively. However, the estimated one-year survival rates were 38% for enacidinib versus 26% for the conventional regimens. Furthermore, median event-free survival was significantly different at 4.9 months in the enacidinib arm versus 2.6 months for conventional treatment. Mean time to treatment failure was likewise significantly different in favor of enacidinib at 4.9 versus 1.9 months. The rates of overall and complete response also were significantly higher in the enacidinib arm, as were rates of hematologic improvement and transfusion independence. The most common adverse events related to enacidinib treatment included low-grade nausea and vomiting, cytopenias, hyperbilirubinemia, and differentiation syndrome. A commentary on these results was provided by Aton M. Stein of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. Stein, who was the first author on the pivotal Phase 1-2 study of enacidinib, said the present Phase 3 results were, quote, unexpected, unquote, in terms of the equivalent overall survival between the two arms, especially since other efficacy endpoints favored enacidinib. The answer to the puzzle is in the discontinuation details. Many patients in the conventional care arm of this open-label study dropped out before being treated or were discontinued due to lack of benefit. Ultimately, about 50% of the patients in the conventional care arm didn't receive a full course of therapy. Thus, the overall survival results of the Phase 3 study are hopelessly confounded, he said, and shouldn't be used to guide clinical practice away from anacidinib. But there's one other question. What is the relevance of the conventional care regimens in 2023? Patients with IDH mutant AML could be especially sensitive to a combination of azacitidine and venetoclax. So perhaps a more useful and practical clinical study design may be to randomize patients with IDH2 mutant relapsed or refractory AML to enacidinib or azacitidine plus venetoclax in a placebo-controlled manner. Thus, Stein concludes, the promise of enacidinib remains alive and in need of further, more definitive exploration. The final article is entitled, Efficacy of Tixagevimab-Silgavimab in Preventing SARS-CoV-2 for Patients with B-Cell Malignancies. The first author is James A. Davis at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. Patients with B-cell malignancies are particularly vulnerable to SARS-CoV-2 infection due to advanced age, use of B-cell-depleting therapies, and immunodeficiency. Many do not develop anti-SARS-CoV-2 spike antibodies in response to COVID-19 mRNA vaccines, and mortality rates following COVID-19 infection have been as high as 10%. 
Tixagevimab silgavimab is a combination of two human monoclonal antibodies sold under the brand name of Evusheld that are targeted at the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein to inhibit viral attachment. Pre-exposure prophylaxis with tixagevimab silgavimab may decrease the incidence or severity of COVID-19 in high-risk patients. And in December 2021, the Food and Drug Administration granted emergency use authorization of this agent in individuals 12 or older with moderate to severe immunodeficiency. Authorization was based on PROVENT, a Phase 3 study in high-risk unvaccinated adults. The breakthrough COVID-19 infection rate in this study was just 0.5%. However, only 7% of patients in the study had cancer or a cancer history, and just 3% were receiving immunosuppressive therapy. In February 2022, the recommended dose was raised from 150 to 300 milligrams for both monoclonal antibodies tixagevimab and silgavimab, based on data suggesting higher doses would be more effective against Omicron subvariants. The recommended dosing interval remains the same at every six months. At least two studies to date looked at use of tixagevimab and silgavimab in patients with hematological malignancies. They showed occurrence of symptomatic COVID-19 in about 4% of patients, though with a follow-up of less than three months. The present study was conducted to determine the efficacy and incidence of COVID-19 breakthrough infections in patients with B-cell malignancies receiving tixagevimab-silgavimab in a real-world setting. Investigators retrospectively analyzed medical records from January to August 2022 in patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, B-cell lymphoma, multiple myeloma, or B-cell ALL, who received pre-exposure prophylaxis. A total of 251 patients were included in the study, of whom 59% were male and the median age was 66 years. Most received a cumulative first dose of 300 mg of tixagevimab and 300 mg of silgavimab. Only 5% received a single dose of 150 mg each. Median follow-up time in the study was 141 days since the initial dose. 53 patients were tested for IgG spike antibodies. Prior to treatment, 79% of these patients had antibody titers below 264 AU per mil, a level which has previously been reported to provide sufficient protection against SARS-CoV-2 infection in immune-competent individuals. But after receiving the tixagevimab-silgavimab treatment, all 53 patients had antibody titers of at least 264 AU per mil. A key finding is that 11% of patients in the study, or 27 out of 251, experienced a confirmed COVID-19 breakthrough infection at a median of 91 days after receiving tixagevimab-silgavimab treatment. The majority of infections occurred at least 30 days after treatment. Of the infected patients, 63% had received a B-cell depleting therapy in the three months prior to infection. 11% were on active therapy with a BTK inhibitor, and 15% had received a bone marrow transplant within six months, but were not on immunosuppressive therapy at the time of their infection. About two-thirds of infected patients had received at least three or more COVID-19 vaccinations prior to their infection. Most of the infections, 85%, or 23 out of 27, occurred between June and August 2022, when the Omicron variant BA5 was dominant in the local population. Four patients, or 15%, were hospitalized for severe infections, but there were no deaths reported. 
In a commentary, Lydia Scarfo of IRCCS Ospedale San Rafael, Italy, and Antonio Cunio of the University of Ferrara, Italy, said that the data by Davis and co-investigators add to a growing body of evidence that suggests a dramatic improvement of the outcome of COVID-19 infection in fragile patients. Initial case fatality rates, up to 34%, had been reported among hospitalized patients with COVID-19 near the beginning of the pandemic. But thanks to vaccination, pre-exposure prophylaxis, and early antiviral treatment, studies including patients with B-cell malignancies are reporting lower rates of hospitalization and lower to no deaths in some cases. However, with an 11% rate of breakthrough COVID-19 infection, it is critical to remain on alert. Scarfo and Cuneo said we must continue to educate patients on infection risks and the importance of a prompt diagnosis to administer the appropriate therapy. And while we have won some battles against COVID-19, we have not yet won the war, as SARS-CoV-2 variants are rapidly changing over time. Furthermore, they said, we must test new prophylactic and therapeutic strategies tailored to protect the most vulnerable patient subgroups. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.